All right, well, good morning. <clears throat> it's great to see you this morning. We're going to um, be continuing on with forgiveness material, which you probably know already. Hopefully you had an opportunity to pick out a hand, or pick up a handout. If not, there are some available up here, back there, and it, it has the outline of what we'll be covering today. And so um, that can be helpful to you. I think what um, we might do is just, yeah, why don't I, I'll pray and then we'll dive in. Just debating. Yeah. All right. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your people this morning. We thank you for your word and how it instructs us in what we need for life and for godliness. We thank you for how it shows us you and your heart. And then it also gives us wisdom for how we show that to people. And we confess that Living life as sinners in a fallen world is complicated and messy, and so we ask for your help as we consider these things. Give us wisdom by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, with with an extensive series like this, I think it's helpful to just kind of keep reviewing some of the categories, make sure they're in our minds well. Um, I was talking with a a sister about this class, and she was just saying that what's so great about it is really what we're doing is taking a biblical truth that we all believe in and confess, this truth about forgiveness, God forgives us, he calls us to forgive others, but then just spending time unpacking what does this actually look like with people. Uh, That can be a lot different than just a few propositional truths, and it requires wisdom. Um, and so I think that's why it's helpful to just keep these things before us. And so I just put some of these review categories on the board um, just as we move through them. But remember, the context for all of this is considering wise love. Um, boundaries can be a helpful tool for inviting wise interaction, um, inviting interaction that isn't full of folly. And we talked to, I guess I didn't put it up there, but we also talked about manipulative repentance and what that can look like um, when we're saying or doing things that on the one hand could look repentant, but might not actually be the intention behind it. And there are a few things to keep in mind when we think about manipulative repentance. One is that it's not about the exact words that we're saying as much as what's the motive behind those words. Um, part of the ways we manipulate people is we say things that could sound okay, uh, but we say them toward a selfish end. And um, that leads to the, the other thing to keep in mind about it. The, the motive for manipulation, it may not be premeditated. We might not be sitting there calculating, if I say this, then I'll get what I want. It often just comes out in the midst of the discomfort of um, being confronted about something or the discomfort of the situation. So manipulative repentance. Um, Then alongside this process of forgiveness is the process of building relational trust. And a lot of times when we think that forgiveness has gone wrong, it can be because we're not distinguishing between granting forgiveness like transactionally, as we talked about. We can have a heart of forgiveness and then, Lord willing, we could transactionally interact or um, grant that when there's repentance. But then, even when forgiveness is granted, um, there's a process of rebuilding relational trust depending how on how much that trust has been destroyed by what has taken place. And so Brad lays out that helpful scale of kind of 1 to 10 of you think of 
the least trusting situation where there's been the most deceit and hurt, all the way to a 10 being a healthy context of friendship and love and care that's refreshing and um, or uh, overall healthy and good. And so there's that whole process. Um, forgiveness does not necessarily mean one moves back immediately to the same position of trust as you had before the situation happened. That's not bound up with human forgiveness as we think about the category. That's a trust category. Trust is a proportional virtue, right? And so it is good and wise to trust someone according to their trustworthiness, and it is foolish to undertrust or to overtrust somebody. And so we're trying to figure that out as we go. Um, and so there's a whole process of rebuilding the relationship trust-wise as we interact at each step. And there's no exact timetable for rebuilding that. A lot of times we like formulas and timetables and, uh, okay, cool, we did two weeks at stage one, we'll do two weeks at stage two. How about three weeks at stage four? Maybe one week because we're super spiritual. Um, no, that's not how it works. It's, it's a give and take of evaluating how the person's responding in the midst of those changes. And then we talked about crisis and post-crisis forgiveness. And, you know, crisis forgiveness is the process of the situation coming out, um, coming to understand the depth of what happened, maybe having preliminary conversations about how hurtful that was, engaging the person's repentance. And then that can build to, Lord willing, there can be this climactic um, event of granting transactional forgiveness to someone who has sinned against us. And, you know, the bigger the hurt, the longer this might take and the more intense this might be. This process is often characterized by intensity. Um, But the um, one thing that we can forget about is there is this whole process on the other side of post-crisis forgiveness. Um, Forgiveness is both an event of this taking place, granting it, but it's also this whole journey, this whole process of getting to it and then also seeking to live by what you are basically covenanting to do with that other person. And so while this is marked by intensity, this phase is often marked by endurance. And Brad just does such a good job bringing out how a lot of times we can be pretty exhausted and already feeling like we've given all the grace we have. And then you enter this stage of post-crisis forgiveness and there's these little sins being done against us, but they can feel so big because of all this that has happened. And we find ourselves responding sinfully to the person that we just forgave. And so that stuff, it's all messy, right? Um, but the, the reason it's so important to understand this is if we don't realize that this post-crisis forgiveness stage is filled with complexity and difficulty, then often when we're in the midst of it and it feels like things aren't working, like, oh, Um, this isn't just easy, this isn't the end of the movie where everyone's just happy and singing, then we start to think, maybe I did forgiveness wrong. And part of what we're trying to do in this class is really shore up what is forgiveness and what are all these other things that relate to it so we can tease those out and address those things in our heart. So it's helpful to realize this is not easy, and, and when we find that it's not easy, it doesn't necessarily mean we're not being forgiving or they're not being forgiving. It's sometimes just the walking it out. Um, And so a realistic view of this post-crisis forgiveness, it helps us continue this hard work of this journey. Um, 
And then we talked very briefly about remembering well after forgiveness. One of the misconceptions that we talked about earlier in the um, course, class, class is probably the better word, earlier in the class was this idea of forgive and forget. And so we can hold ourselves to this standard of like, if I've forgiven someone, this means I no longer remember what took place. This isn't what God actually does, and this isn't what we're even capable of doing as humans. Um, It's not like the blue pill in the matrix where we can just erase the memories of what happened before. But in this post-crisis forgiveness, part of the process is saying, I want to remember well what took place. And part of what that means is distinguishing two things. Um, understanding both things, but distinguishing them. One is what actually happened and um, figuring out more clearly the events of what took place can be part of remembering well. Sometimes we need to know that more clearly. Sometimes we already know it perfectly clearly. But then also, so it's what took place, but then what did I feel as a result? What was the harm that was done? What did this do to me? What was going on in my heart based on what took place? And to realize that both of those things happened. Both of those things need to be accounted for. But both of those things are not the same. And uh, as we come to understand that, that is helpful to us. Um, The Bible calls us to move toward remembering accurately. Forgiveness doesn't revise history. The Bible is full of sinful things that people did. It doesn't erase them even though they were forgiven for those things. Um, it doesn't call us just to pretend the bad thing never happened, but it, it calls us into this process of remembering it well and responding rightly to the person based on it. And so we're, we're recalling what happened and how we felt about it. One way you could think of this too is the events of what happened are kind of like the scenes that you see on a movie screen, right? It's this character said this to this person. Like this is what's going on. Um, And so we distinguish that. But then the feelings about what happened are kind of like the soundtrack that's going along with it. Have you ever watched a movie without a soundtrack? It can be really strange, right? Like you have this intense conversation and you're like, this seems intense, but I don't know, (laughs) right? But then you, you turn the audio back up it's like, oh, yep, intense. Or you can know an intense scene is coming. Or this is building fear in a person before something even happens. That's, that's the feeling soundtrack that's taking place. And the more we come to remember the situation well, we become more attuned to what was I feeling, what was eliciting that response, and what actually did the other person do. And then as we think about those things, it helps us then, based on remembering well, it helps us respond to the person wisely of, okay, where am I at with this person based on what really happened and and, um, how I felt about it. And it helps us respond to them with grace as well. Um, And so we'll talk a, a little bit more about that as we go. But it's just a good category to have, uh, especially in situations that are more significant and don't just disappear from our remembered experience. Um, One of the things I said last week, too, that I think just bears repeating is um, significant and hurtful events for us um, are profound things in the way that they're stored in our embodied memory. And so it's not just a brain thing that we can just try and think differently or get that thought out of 
of there. We have embodied responses to what took place. And that can be a, a big process to work through. And another thing I'd like to say about that is a lot of times we hear that and we think, oh, of course, someone in a really significant car accident or someone who was overseas and uh, in war and saw horrific things, of course they have embodied responses to um, hurtful memories. It can be very small, like from, from the outside perspective, it can be very small, seemingly insignificant things that also produce the very same memory experience. So it could be something like you were called in front of the class and you got the answer wrong in front of the class and people laughed at you. And the embodied response and memory to that has shaped your whole life. Um, and so it's just good to be aware of those categories. It's helpful to know as we interact with people and maybe their response to something we did seems disproportionate to us. Often that's because there's a lot more going on. It's also really helpful to know as we seek to understand our own hearts because there can be times we walk away from a situation and we say, whoa, I, that was a 10. And you know, as I think, I responded as a 10. And now as I think about it, that's probably like a one or two what they were doing. What's going on there? And we can help you find trusted people who can help you walk through that. So that's just part of the human experience of hurtful things happening to us and how our minds, bodies, hearts process, store, and work with that information. So I think that's just good to know. Um, again, that could be, so much more could be said, but it's good to have that category. Okay, I think that's the review. Today, we are going to shift, monumental shift in the class, um, from thinking about forgiveness and thinking about granting forgiveness to now the process of experiencing forgiveness from another person. Because surprise, surprise, everything that we think is easy, none of it actually is. It's all complicated, right? Because we're people. And because this whole process isn't perfect, it's a journey. Um, and so what we're going to look at um, first is why embracing forgiveness can be difficult. Why embracing forgiveness can be difficult. And so uh, just to situate us, what this is helping us understand is this. We have sinned against another person. We've realized that. Um, we've repented of that. We've sought forgiveness from that person. That person has granted us forgiveness. That's an amazing thing. We've come here, right? Um, and, and there's a lot of stuff, depending on what went down, that can uh, take us to that point. Um, on the other side of forgiveness, as the offender, we can find ourselves saying, I don't feel forgiven. This isn't easy. What's going on? Why are things this way? Um, and so sometimes this is because we did a major offense and we realize the consequences of that. Um, sometimes this is even small things that just continue to nag at us. And um, this helps us just start to categorize some of why might this be. And so a, a good thing where we start is realizing First of all, how God's forgiveness works. And so Brad Hambrick says this, It's one thing to live forgiven in the eyes of God. It is something else to live forgiven in the eyes of another person. Just because an offense against a perfect God is more significant, right? So offending God is more significant than offending another person, even though that is significant. 
But just because offending God is more significant, it does not mean that embracing God's forgiveness is more difficult. Now, embracing God's forgiveness can be difficult. We talked about that a bit before. I just need to forgive myself can be sometimes related to how am I embracing God's forgiveness. There can be all kinds of reasons we're thinking about that. This is talking about why horizontally can it be hard to embrace when another person forgives me. And Brad lays out five challenges of embracing forgiveness for another person, um, five ways that it's different than God forgiving us. And so you can see these laid out there. The first is we see the people we offend. Do we see God's response to our sin? Maybe through the eyes of faith, like in our our mind's eye, perhaps, but we, we really don't. We don't see the expression on God's face. We don't hear the tone of voice of God or his pain in it. We don't see God somewhere. Like we come to church and all of a sudden, God walks into a different room and we're left saying, "Uh uh-oh, are they avoiding me because of what I did to them? And again, remember this is after being forgiven. Um, We don't send God a text and then wonder every minute that there's not a response, are they okay with me? Are they still hurt by what happened? Where am I in this process? And so, but we have interactions with the people that we hurt all the time. Um, Sunday is filled with that. We're to be forgiving people, right? And we're, as we get to know each other, we're sinning against each other. And so we come to church on Sunday, and part of that is seeing people we sinned against and saying, where am I with you? (laughs) Even though we've granted this forgiveness thing, um, and I know God's forgiven me. So, And what happens is these interactions with the people we have sinned against, what they do is they give us a lot of information to process. And we don't process that information unaffectedly. Oh, Person went in a different room. Oh, text response is taking a while. That elicits emotions within us that then we have to process. And so that's one of the ways forgiveness from other people is different than forgiveness from God. We see them. Second, people are more harmed by our sin than God is. Um, We don't do irreparable damage to God when we sin, God is sturdy. God is a rock. Um, There's the impassibility of God. There's all these doctrines of God that tell us sin offends his holiness. Sin is inadmissible in his presence, like two poles of a magnet, right? We know these things about God. But God does not live in perpetual pain because we continue to sin. Um, With God, we face the reality of our sin, is what we have to come to terms with. But in his perfect fatherliness, he keeps the focus then on how to change us going forward, right? It's not so much a backward trajectory. But with other people, we face the consequences that our sin has done to them. So with God, we're facing the reality we've sinned against him. With other people, we face the consequences. Our sin may wound people physically, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, and we see the pain that we caused as we see them. It can be distracting. It can be overwhelming to us. And even after being forgiven, we see the load that we created for the other person that they have to bear somehow. That's a weighty thing. Um, 
this is different than knowing how God rejoices at the opportunity to forgive, Luke 15 tells us. He, he rejoices at the opportunity to do this. It's not that forgiveness doesn't cost God anything, but forgiveness affects God differently than it affects creatures. Um, point three, people have not promised forgiveness ahead of time. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? We come to God knowing this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus has already cried out, it is finished. And we know these sins are forgiven. And yet how hard can it be sometimes to bring our sins to God and and to seek his forgiveness? Um, We ask God for forgiveness already knowing the answer. And we know from scripture, God doesn't change his mind about forgiveness. But we ask others for forgiveness with a sense of suspense. That's just the reality of it. Um, We could be met with an answer that says, I just need more time. I'm I'm glad you see this, but I need more time. We could be met with a response that says, no, I don't forgive you for what you've done. Um, We could be met with clarifying questions. Hey, I've sinned against you. That's great. I'd like to talk to you a little further about that. What, what did you do and what was the harm that that did to me? I have, I have clarifying questions. And the offended person has a right to ask those things, right? Um, they may ask for consequences. Yes, I'll grant forgiveness, but there are consequences. Like you need to tell that mutual friend that what you said about me was untrue. Uh, you need to make restitution for what you did. Those things might be there. Um, and we may have a, have a lot of what if they do this or say this questions as we approach someone to seek their forgiveness. With God, we know the answer already, and we're bringing it to him to acknowledge the reality of it. Number four, people are not perfect at forgiving. What? <laughs> Even Christians <laughs> are not perfect at forgiving. Part of what we've been seeing in the whole class is this, that for people, forgiveness is a process. Forgiveness is a journey. Uh, It can have events in it, the offense happening, forgiveness being granted, but the overall experience is a process and a journey. For God, it is not. It's not. The only process in God's forgiveness is, is what happens here is our sanctification. (laughs) I've forgiven you, and now I'm at work by my spirit helping you change to become less and less a person who does this. Like That's what God is focused on in how forgiveness is taking place. And he never comes back saying, you know, I thought I'd forgiven you, but I've realized further what you did, and I just need to talk to you about it. Um, No, he already knows all of those things and grants it. This is what Brad uh, says about people and forgiveness. When we seek forgiveness, two people are mid-journey. Us, putting our sin to death, and our friend, learning to forgive. When we embrace forgiveness from the other person, we must leave space for them to be mid-journey too. God is perfect and therefore doesn't need to grow from the experience of forgiving. With people, we are both growing. This can be messy. Embracing forgiveness from another person requires that we be willing to enter this messiness with them as they have been willing to enter it with us. I think that's just such a helpful way of framing it. Hey, let's go on this journey 
of forgiveness together. And I'm not going to rush you and judge you for where you are in the process. And you're not going to rush and judge me. And we're both going to seek the Lord's help to walk this out. Because this is hard. So people are not perfect at forgiving. And then fifth, people take time to heal. Jesus paid for our sins fully on the cross. Um, God's side of forgiveness is taken care of. We're not waiting on him to do anything, right? Um, With God, forgiveness is purely on our timeline. It's really saying, when will you come to see this and come to me to confess it and forgiveness granted? Because I knew it, it's been paid for at the cross. Like it's an amazing thing, right? But with another person, forgiveness may be delayed. This is what Brad says. Forgiveness may be delayed because of healing that needs to occur in their life. The other person didn't choose for us to hurt them. We cannot choose the pace at which they will forgive. See the posture of humility there? When forgiveness is delayed as the other person takes time to heal, we are forced to face the magnitude and impact of our sin. Rushing our friend is a form of minimizing our sin. It's also a form of not loving. <laughs> um, but, but often what it says in our hearts is we don't really feel the weight, understand the weight of what we've done if we're rushing another person to say, you need to get over this. So those are some of the challenges of embracing forgiveness for another person and why that journey can be tricky. Um, why is it helpful to realize all of this? Why, why talk about this? Well, there are three reasons. One, it makes us grateful for God's forgiveness. I'm amazed as we're going through this class how much richer of an appreciation it gives me and hopefully it's giving all of us for the wonder of the fact that we are forgiven of our sins by God. I mean, we talk about it every Sunday. We take the Lord's Supper every Sunday as a sign of that forgiveness that's taken place by the blood of Christ, right? But the more we walk out this journey of forgiveness for other peop- with other people, both in offending and forgiving, <laughs> the more we realize it is amazing what God grants us. And um, it also makes us delight in the attributes of God, who he is that makes his forgiveness so straightforward. And that makes our relationship with him, which not that it's easy and not complicated and we're creatures trying to relate to our God, but it's actually really straightforward on his part. And that's a beautiful thing how he knows everything, how he's not overwhelmed by these things, but is solid and can respond to us in perfect love and care, that he's not focused on the pain he feels from our sin, but focused on our good that he's going to continue to work out as he shapes and molds us by grace, not because he's mad at us. Like Those are amazing things that as we understand the complexity of this, it, it makes us more love and appreciate our God and his forgiveness. Secondly, it deepens our empathy and compassion for those we sin against. As we, as we think about what all's going on in this, it produces a humility in us and it deepens our, our empathy. We can feel what it feels like to be the one who has to be granting forgiveness for something that was really hard. It gives us compassion for what our sin has done to them. It helps keep us from demanding that they be like God 
in how they forgive us. As we understand these differences, we say, wait a minute, I'm seeking forgiveness from a creature, from another person like me, and it's going to look different than seeking forgiveness from God. Um, The Bible calls individual believers to forgive. Uh, We'll talk about that in a minute. You know, we hear those passages about forgiving as we've been forgiven. But it's interesting, it doesn't say that we are to demand forgiveness from other people, does it? And I think that's a helpful distinction to keep in mind. It also doesn't say we're to demand the pace of forgiveness from another person. And so we can show God's patience by allowing people to forgive at their own pace. That's part of showing godly patience. And then third, it helps us articulate the challenges we face when we are the one forgiving. As we've been going through this class, one of the things that I just continue to realize, and maybe you're realizing yourself, is if we have thought overly simplistically about forgiveness, it's probably created all kinds of turmoil in our hearts. Now, maybe it's stuff we've just stuffed and uh, just tried not to think about, But as we open it up and as we unpack it, we realize, oh, wow, there's a lot going on here. Um, And and part of this, what the worst thing to do with all of that is, is say, there's a lot going on here. Forgiveness must be bad or I must be bad. (laughs) What God is inviting us to do and what we hopefully are lovingly and wisely inviting one another to do is say, something about forgiveness is causing angst or consternation in you. Let's unpack that. Where is that coming from? Is that a forgiveness thing or is that something else? Is that a misunderstanding of forgiveness? And so as we unpack all of this, being able to articulate the challenges we're facing of like, you know what, this part's really hard. (laughs) And I never felt like I could say that in church before because I thought once I grant forgiveness, I lose all talking privileges. Um, No, that's, that's not how this works. You can articulate any of this, and we will wisely and lovingly help you unpack that. And often, articulating it is the first step to saying, what, how does God want to meet us there in that discomfort, and what does his word say about it, and what help is there in it? But just stuffing it and not articulating it um, just leads to all kinds of harm. And so it may be going slow on our end, but we can kindly and lovingly articulate the strain that exists as we're feeling it as the one who's forgiving or being forgiven. Brad says this statement that I think is just amazing to think about. Mutual understanding. I want to, I want to know you and what, what's going on. I want to understand where you are, not just freak out because you said the wrong word. Mutual understanding and patience. When I hear what's going on, I will walk with you in what's going on, not say, that's bad, fix it now. (laughs) Um, Mutual understanding and patience create an environment of love and trust. Love and trust that allows forgiveness to be cultivated. I love when we use organic imagery for the human experience of walking out life together as believers or growing in our walk with God. Scripture is full of the Christian life is like a plant. Why is it like that? Because a plant isn't built overnight. Because a plant grows and changes depending on all kinds of things. Because plants need pruned and cultivated and attention and care. 
Um, that's how all this stuff is. And so if we look at forgiveness instead of just, hey, it's just this thing that took uh, five seconds, forgiven, move on, you're okay with it, right? Um, No, we are cultivating forgiveness. Um, We are doing the hard work of plowing the ground and planting the seeds and coming back and saying, hey, did I... Did I do something wrong with this plant <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm cultivating it? Okay, so why embracing forgiveness can be difficult? Basically because we're not God. And as soon as we come to understand that, we can actually start really working through these things, can't we? And so we, we shouldn't expect ourselves to be God, and we shouldn't expect other people to be God when it comes to sinning against one another. Second, let's talk about forgiveness and shame. Um, This, again, is getting at we have sinned against another person. They have said they forgive us. But this still feels messy somehow. Something's going on here. And one of the things that often happens um, for us is guilt and shame are spoken of as synonyms. Um, what did Brad say? It's like water damage and moisture damage. Like we, we kind of use them as, yeah, that's the same thing, right? Um, when actually guilt and shame are very complicated and nuanced topics. And we're going to err on the side of simplicity here, but I think even just um, simplistically opening these up can be helpful. Um, and so sometimes as, as you study shame, it, it can be so nuanced it gets a little bit paralyzing. Um, sometimes the nuances of it are super helpful. And so here's what we need to know. While there's overlap in the experience of guilt and shame, they're not exactly the same thing. And learning to tease that out in our own hearts can really help us here. And so for the sake of, of this lesson, and again, caveat, 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 but there, there's a lot more that could be said, but let's just start here. We'll distinguish them in this way. And you can see that here, simple distinction. Guilt focuses on what we did. Shame focuses on who we are. And so guilt feels the weight of having done a bad thing. Guilt is about activity. The worse the bad thing done, the greater the weight of guilt felt. There's kind of a proportionality to it typically. Guilt knows that there are consequences for the bad thing and is concerned about how to resolve those consequences. So that's guilt, right? We've done something wrong, and, and that's, that's what's going on there with that. Shame believes that what we have done somehow makes us less than. There aren't degrees of consequence with shame. You know, with guilt, there's often this proportionality. Okay, I did this thing. And I feel this, like, how proportionate is that to the thing that I did? Shame is often like an on-off switch about something. We can do the smallest thing and feel just as much shame as doing something, like, horrific if, if we're thinking about these things. Um, there aren't degrees of consequence with shame. Rather, it's the inherent sense of being unacceptable. Unacceptable is a good word there. Shame is about identity. And so if we go back to our metaphor of canceling a debt, which is the primary language Scripture uses for forgiveness, right? Um, Someone sins against us, it's indebtedness, and forgiveness says, I cancel that debt against you. Even though forgiveness cancels a debt, 
Shame makes us feel like we won't be admitted into the store to buy something, even if we have the money. You see how that works? Less than, unacceptable identity. And so let's think for a moment then about shame, forgiveness, and God. It's important to realize that God does more than just forgive us. He also deals with our shame. That's an amazing thing. It is something we are trying to bring out in in the preaching and teaching as we talk about sin. Um, And and you'll see that as, as we go on. Justification, which we've been unpacking in Romans, right, is this amazing court verdict that's rendered. Sin forgiven, no punishment deserved, actually righteousness declared. Um, And so you have this court verdict of forgiveness, but the reality that we know from lived experience is someone could have a court verdict that says your punishment has been paid, but then seek to re-enter society or re-enter their home and not be welcomed there because of a feeling of less than or because of a stigma that's there. Sometimes they're not readmitted because of consequences, but sometimes it's because of just shame. And so um, that's what shame's getting at. You're deemed acceptable, unacceptable. You're somehow less than because of what you've done. The wonder of the gospel is this. It offers both propitiation, which we just talked about last week, right? Christ being put forward as the sin bearer who also gives us his righteousness for our guilt. But what we will get to in Romans as we go on is the gospel isn't just about propitiation. It also includes adoption. And adoption is what gets at that identity dynamic um, because it says you are now welcome. You are now son, daughter, at the equal table (laughs) with our elder brother, the Lord Jesus, and with the Father. You are loved and accepted. You are welcomed by God through the gospel. Not just you're forgiven, but you're now less than. That's what the gospel does for us. That's an amazing thing. And it's something we continually need to grow in in our understanding of of the gospel. Let's look at... uh, uh, some biblical language for this. If, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Psalm 3. Because <clears throat> I just, I want us to see this distinction from a real life case study. Sometimes we forget the Bible's about real life, don't we? It can just feel like it's stories about people different than us. <clears throat> Psalm 3, the... Um, What's that called there at the top? Inscription? Is that what is it? Where? Anyhow, the thing at the top that tells us the context of the psalm. It's super helpful in this one. It says a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now we just need to stop there for a minute, okay? Because we haven't been going through First and Second Samuel. David's life. Um. David commits sins that we talk about, Bathsheba, Uriah. But then later, one of the things that happens in David's life is um, his son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Um, One of the darkest chapters in the Bible. What does David do about that? What should David as king do when that happens in his kingdom 
for anyone, he should deal with that, right? What should David especially do as king and father of his raped daughter? He should do a lot. Justice um, should be enacted for this victim. He does nothing. Um, And what happens? Absalom is really mad about what happened to his sister, and then he kills Amnon. What does David do about that? Nothing. David as king and his father should have done a lot of that. What does this lead to in David's life? Um, David's continued unresponsiveness to Absalom, who's actually seeking him out, (laughs) getting an audience with the king and then just dismissed and living far off. David knows what's going on and he's doing nothing about it. So, I mean, anyhow, David's continued unresponsiveness led Absalom to start a coup to oust David. This is the context of Psalm 3. David ends up fleeing from Absalom, his son. He has to leave, right? It's it's just an amazing, dark story. Um, And so he's fleeing. And notice what it says there. Um, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. I mean, his own son is rising up against him. And then the, the city of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, who all thought David could do no wrong. I mean, you know, the elections in our country, it's often like somewhat close. I mean, <laughs> David, 99%. You've got one or two people who just have never met him. But now it's gone to everyone's get rid of David. We like Absalom. And, and so the foes are within his family. The whole nation has turned on him. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now, we, we may just gloss over that, but can you think of why David would be saying that? Because people are finding out, because Absalom is broadcasting, he's putting on the internet what good old David has done. And people are like, what? He did what with Bathsheba? He did what with Uriah? He did what about Tamar? He did what about Abnon? What kind of a guy is it? What kind of king, what kind of Christian does these things, right? And so people's response is to say, there is no salvation for him. And God, I don't even think this guy's a believer because he did those things, is some of what's swirling in the air. Selah, pause there, which we did. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. This tells us some of where David is in the forgiveness process, really. Because he's, he's, not saying, he's not saying, you're the washer of my sin, you're the bearer of my penalty. Things that he talks about more in Psalm 51, right? Where he's confessing what he's done there. I think this is a different part in the journey where he has sought God's forgiveness about these things, it seems like. And yet what he's proclaiming is God's action toward him as the lifter of his head. Um, Addressing someone in their shame is a way of speaking of lifting their head. It can be said that shame is an experience of the eyes. That shame is what has us not able to look up. 
Shame is what has us not able to lift our head, especially in the presence of the one we've offended. Um, Where our head is, biblically, is a really interesting thing, right? If our eyes are down, that could be worship, but that can be shame. If our heads are too far up, (laughs) that's arrogant pride. We're kind of looking down. But lifting our head to the right level is something amazing about what God does. It's interesting when you're training a puppy, not that I've ever done this, but my sister's the dog whisperer, and I texted her to make sure this was true, and she wrote back, it depends on the dog, so it's complicated, just like with people, right? But a general principle (laughs) about puppy training, dog training, is that when you're doing that, uh, you stare the puppy in the face until it looks away. And what does that do as you're training this puppy? It teaches the puppy who the master is. (laughs) You can maintain the gaze, but the puppy must look away because the puppy isn't the master. (laughs) Um, And so that that can kind of show this, this experience of the eyes dynamic that we feel. But the problem is we can be forgiven by God, but feel like we can't look back and have that gaze again with him as one who's loved and accepted and not less than. And so Brad says God's response to David was to gently put his hand under David's chin and draw David's gaze to God's tender eyes of grace. That's the experience we have of not just justification, which says you're forgiven, but the head lifting that says you're welcomed and accepted. You're not less than. You're beloved just as much as my beloved son because you're in him. And he says this, loving eye contact can do what the verbal contract, I forgive you, never could. I think that's something helpful for us to think about as we walk this journey of forgiveness with one another, is that even though we may have forgiveness granted to us transactionally, there may be residual shame that we feel. And that could be because of all kinds of things of why we feel it so intensely. The other person may be seeking to shame us, and that's something they need to work on, and we talk that out. Um, But a lot of times it's an inward sense of unworthiness that we're bringing to the table for some reason. The gospel is speaking of both how we are forgiven, the guilt is taken care of, and how we are accepted. The shame is dealt with as the Lord lifts our head. And so let's think about that then in terms of shame, forgiveness, and others. Um, One thing I need to say before we dive into it is this. I I mentioned that shame shame can be super complicated, right? One distinction I think we need to maintain is there is a difference between the shame of something that's done against us and the shame of something that we did. What we're talking about here is primarily how to deal with the shame of what we did. Um, if you want to understand better the shame we experience from what was done against us, um, Brad has this link that is a great start on that journey. So bradhambrick.com, shame sermon. It'll just take you to this page that lays out a lot of what we're talking about here, but then helps you go in the directions too of, what about the shame of what's been done against me or that I've experienced in life? that leads to me feeling less than in these ways. So just to say that, 
we're talking here about the shame of what we have done when we are David, you know, in, in that situation. With God, it's only our readiness to receive his forgiveness that's the question, not his readiness to give the forgiveness. Um, and so people are a little bit different. So think about these situations. And again, these are situations Brad gives, and so I'm throwing them out there that way. Um, Think of parents whose addiction made them utterly unreliable for their children. Think of the business or ministry leader who was fired for embezzling money. Think of the spouse who committed adultery. We realize that simply hearing the words, I forgive you, doesn't make eye contact comfortable, natural, or sometimes even immediately appropriate. The debt may be canceled, And even if the other person isn't being punitive, even if the forgiver isn't being punitive toward the offender, there can still be major obstacles to a restored relationship. And so where do we stand relationally with the other person is part of what we're wondering. And so when it comes to dealing with the shame we um, feel when we are forgiven, it's this question of acceptance. Does the other person accept me? And so I want us to think for a second, what acceptance does not mean? Um, A few things. We should remember that forgiveness does not mean the removal of consequences, right? There may still be consequences for what we've done, and that doesn't mean we're not accepted. A child can be forgiven for hitting a baseball through the window and still be expected to pay for the window. And that doesn't mean there should be shame or that they're not forgiven, And so we should also remember that acceptance still maintains that trust builds wisely over time. That doesn't mean we don't accept the person. Engaging in the building of trust says, I'm accepting you, but we need to walk this out. So acceptance does not mean the removal of consequences, and acceptance does not mean full trust instantly, okay? If we overly simplify that, then we have problems. But here's what acceptance does mean. We are equals. We are of the same kind. I am not enforcing social dominance over you because of your sin against me. That's the posture of a forgiving heart, and that's what we're seeking to extend to a person when we forgive them. We're the same. We are sinners who have sinned against God and are forgiven freely by his grace. You did this thing, but that doesn't mean you're here and I'm here. Um, and so it's, it's this journey often for the forgiving person to get to this place. When we're the one forgiving, we might be tempted to look at them as less than, and the Lord works in our hearts until we read Romans 1 through 3 over and over again, and we're like, I see where I am in the gospel. I see that it's all by his grace. Um, and so it can be a journey for us when we're doing the forgiving, Um, but also it can be a journey for the one who's being forgiven to say, you know what, I believe you that that's how you view me. And so um, what can we do when we've forgiven someone, but we wonder if they still feel shame about it? Or maybe we've been forgiven, but we still feel ashamed before the other person. Um, I would say there's a lot that could be talked about and and process through. But what it can lead to is having a conversation about it. And this can be a way that we as forgivers 
can seek to care for those who are bearing the shame of this if we've come to find out that that's some of what's going on. And in a conversation like this, Brad says the offender could once again acknowledge the wrong they did. Hey, I know I did these things. I know these are the ongoing consequences. I know we're in this process of building wise trust. I know that's where we are. But then the forgiver can say, I'm, I'm thankful for that. You've said all that. I know that. And I forgive you. I have forgiven you. I forgive you. And then, but this is what adds to the shame fighting of it. I want you to know that while what you did was wrong, it does not make you less than. I not only forgive you as Jesus forgave me, I accept you as God accepts us. See, an opportunity to extend that uh, can be part of this journey as well. Brad says, the behavioral residue, (laughs) which means habits that emerge from how we've felt about the situation, um, the behavioral residue of shame can become a deeply ingrained habit. Um, This can be something that goes really deep in us, the shame we feel when we wrong someone else. Having people who love us invite tender eye contact as they remind us of the simple truth of acceptance can be a powerful counter to this habituation. Uh, to this pattern and experience of of feeling of shame. So there's so much more that could be said about guilt and shame. I mean, part of me hesitates to even bring it up, but I think it's really good for us to have this category. And there are a few reasons. One is because the gospel is about addressing both of these things. And so one of the ways that we can just grow as people who feel shame and as people who are encountering others who feel shame is every Sunday as the gospel is proclaimed and as we partake of the Lord's Supper, remind yourself, if it's not said explicitly, that what the Lord's Supper is a sign of is both forgiveness and being seated at the table. It's forgiveness and welcome. The, the Lord's Supper is something that just is a visible demonstration that's, that says the opposite of what shame tells us. It says none of us are less than, that all of us are here because we have done horrible things against God and against others, but we've been freely forgiven by his grace. And there are others here who have sinned against me, and there are people I have sinned against, and we're seeking to walk in this journey of forgiveness imperfectly as it might be. But we all before God are forgiven and accepted, and one day we will know the wonder of feeling and experiencing that fully with him, which we already have. And one day we will know the wonder of experiencing that with one another in his presence. And for now, we try and point each other to it and patiently walk it out with each other. I really just kind of want to leave it there. Um, Because, to be honest, can I just be... I've been honest this whole time, but can I be continue in honesty? Um, this chapter baffles me because this chapter, it's in the section of embracing forgiveness for others, but then it goes back to when people sin against us. And so I'm like, who missed that it belongs back there? But maybe someone wanted to balance the book better. And um, so I don't know why. I'll ask Brad someday if I ever get to talk to him. This feels awkward. Uh, 
What should I do? What's that? Oh, questions. <laughs> Great. Does anyone have any questions? Kevin has one. What's that? Yeah, would you mind doing that just so people don't think I disappeared who are watching at home? I do know I pray at the end. Thank you. That's helpful. (laughs) At some point I feel like if I can't forgive perfectly as God does, then is it really forgiveness? Hmm. And, And then I remember that um, God calls us to love, and we don't do that perfectly either. But we're still seeking to um, embrace God's love and to to model that in everything that we do. Yep. And I think I feel like um, that gives me hope. Um, and so maybe being able to forgive, even though it's not perfect, also gives me hope. Unless instead of feeling like I'll never get this right. Mm. It's okay because engaging in that journey is the point. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good point. And can I just shoot straight with you all? If you can find any command in Scripture that you think you do perfectly, I would like to talk to you further. I will do it lovingly, but I will say, I'm sorry, you don't understand your own heart. Um, that's the reality. But what you're highlighting, Kevin, is we come to some of these commands in Scripture and we think somehow this one's attainable instead of the, the real creaturely humble acknowledgement that in the messiness of the fall and the twistedness of our own hearts, even the things that we do the best at still have all kinds of swirly things going on underneath that are not how Jesus did them when he was here on earth. And one day in glory, we will know the wonder of that. Um, but so I think, I think the more we come to grow in that, the more it helps us shoot down this, these feelings of guilt we may have about particular sins that when we're not doing them perfectly, we think um, something's really off. Whereas the hopeful point of, of what you're saying is, it's about the process of turning to God in dependence, saying, I need help. I can't do this. That's what the gospel says all the time. I'm a worse sinner than I even know. Um, but you love me even more, and your grace is even more than I've understood until this point. So, yeah, I think that's really a good point. Um, one, one more question. Darcy, wait for the microphone. I don't know if I can form it perfectly, but since you know me rather well, you might be able to parse it out. This is a marital test. Yeah. Everyone ready? Um, So you you talk about shame, and I I find that to be one of, like, please teach on it further at some point. But um, in the whole forgiveness thing, how do you parse out when, when I've done when I've done the offense, or when, the, when, or maybe I'm talking more in the per, in the position of somebody who's doing the forgiving, and the person that I'm forgiving displays woefulness and and like shame can look like self pity too. So how do you parse that out as a person who's trying to extend forgiveness? Does that is that clear what I'm asking? I think so. 
I mean, it sounds like at the core you're wondering, are, are we to be trying to distinguish right. we've given forgiveness to someone else? Are they, uh, I'll just put these words on it and we'll unpack it. Are they wallowing in self-pity or is this shame I need to address? Right. Is that what yeah. you're asking? Yeah. Sweet. Uh, um, now I just have to answer it. <laughs> um, I mean, what I'm thinking is this, that either way the answer's the same of how can I better understand this and move in, in love. Um, yeah, it might not be your job to figure it out. Um, self-pity. Self-pity goes back to me of the person's grappling with the implications of forgiveness and consequences and all those kinds of things. And that's, to me, it goes into those categories of I just can't forgive myself. Those, there can be all these reasons why there can be this feeling that we from the outside may say that seems like self-pity or something like that. Um, self-pity can sometimes get held up as that would be a horrific thing to be doing, whereas when I hear it, I think, someone's wrestling with what's going on in their heart about their experience of this whole thing, and I just want to better understand that. And so I want to understand, are there implications of forgiveness or consequences, or is this is there just regret over the way things now are because of what I've done? Like, are there things like that that I could help address? Or is this that they feel less than because of what they've done in the shame category? So either way... Um, it's just trying to understand their experience of why is it a hard place for them and is there anything I can do relationally in my position with them that can help address that, whether that's reassuring that I forgive them and I don't hold this against them, whether that's the I can maintain eye contact and say you are not less than and I know this feels awkward. So to me, moving toward that in a conversation would be the start and um, I don't know if that answers it, but. You're nodding that it does, so sweet. Okay. Well, that worked out, so we'll see. Now, the answer could have been way wrong, and you all can correct me for that later. So why don't I pray as we wrestle with these things? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the forgiveness that you have given us so freely by your grace that we see so clearly in the cross. I pray that today as we hear that again, that our boast would grow in the gospel and that you'd chip away at any pride we might have or misconceptions of of our, our standing before you, that you would both break down our pride and meet us in our shame and in our guilt, reassure us of your forgiveness and of your welcome, and then help us to be the kind of people who can more and more show that to others as we seek to walk along this journey. So we thank you for your grace in all of this, your acceptance, your welcome, the sure hope that one day we will experience the fullness of all of this. And until that day, will you give us the strength to not grow weary in doing good? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.